welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 38, First Love. I've been asked to talk about a very delicate subject of a very personal nature. And you know I dislike talking about personal things unless I can make a macrocosmic reference. So I shall universalize the problem. It's a problem raised by falling in love for the first time. What are you baffling about? Yeah, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's a lot younger than I am, but he can't remember. Falling in love for the first time. Now, we'll assume that this is possible, and that the person who thought she had, had, in order to treat the matter seriously. Let's think about the condition of a human being. We will not say sexually biased one way or the other. A human being, a human being. Human being with a body, with feelings, an intellect and will. In some degree of balance, and this human being deciding to become perfectly balanced. That is to say, in total control of body response, emotional response, intellective formal presentation, and a will which is pure initiative. And this person sets out to do this, and actually makes a declaration, I would love to be a perfect being an all-rounder. And it is my intent to dedicate myself to the pursuit of this state of perfection, which we will loosely call the hermaphroditic state, as some wit observed recently from Hermes, a, uh, a god, and Aphrodite, a goddess. Now, Hermes means all intellectual clevernesses and Aphrodite means all arts of love. So this person is dedicated to the perfection of a being capable of all supremely logological intellectual insights without losing a capacity for infinite presentations of the arts of love. Such a being would be a true hermaphrodite. Now it happened that this particular being was slightly biased towards the feminine side of nature. And with this great declaration of intent, going along, doing her studies brilliantly, thoroughly satisfied to be the perfect human being, or well on the way to it, when suddenly there appears over the horizon a beautiful young man, intelligent, kind, rational, understanding, tolerant, 
all those virtues that you naturally associate with the mature male. <laughs> and suddenly the sight of this wondrous creature does something to her. Her chemistry becomes unbalanced. You know, the eye has a thing, the Bible tells you the lust of the eye. She looks upon this creature, does she see the creature? Or does she see the infinite possibilities hidden within the depths of the creature, somehow mysteriously shining forth onto the skin surface? Well, in any case, whether it's the one or the other, she falls in love. And immediately upon falling in love, something very strange happens. Her declaration of becoming a perfect, balanced hermaphrodite suddenly loses glamour. She begins to fall down towards the feminine pole of being. His beauty, his positivity, his power seems somehow to make her wish to give in to him. Not to balance herself, but to submit herself to so glorious a being. It's understandable that that should happen. If suddenly the Messiah comes in, and you happen to be a virgin, the first thing you want to do for him is lie down and make yourself available. Because everybody knows the world is short of messiahs anyway, and there's one fairly good way of assuring a supply, <laughs> providing you're not on the pill. So, all her resolution of perfecting her own being disappears. And then, horror of horrors, what else has disappeared with it? Her intelligence has vanished. With her declaration to perfect herself, she has abased herself. Quite suddenly, she abandons the project of self-perfection and the gaining of the hermaphroditic state. And then, what happens? She suddenly begins to do something she's never done before, has blamed her mother for doing on many, many occasions. But she resolved, when very young, never to do it. That is, when the Messiah comes with all his radiant beauty to begin to bring some form of behavior, anti-messianic, diabolical, there rises in her soul a peculiar impulse to nag, to complain, to point out deficiencies in this Messiah, <laughs> to point out points needing remedial action. <laughs> now, because it's the first time she's fallen in love and she's very young, she did not know that... that that's not taking into account the long body girl. <laughs> On this occasion, since this conception, her first time this time round. Somehow there arises in her an awareness that the perfection she saw in him is indeed perfection, but like the shawl of a rabbi with tzitzis on it, periodically the tzitzis need trimming. So she decides that there's a hair on his collar or a bit of dust on his necktie and he must be removed. 
and suddenly she becomes quite out of control and she begins to jump up and down and shriek and nag and to point out deficiencies that he certainly did not know he had. Not only did he not know that he hadn't got them, but he was absolutely sure that her first assessment of him was correct. (laughs) He then became very, very puzzled. But because on this occasion, this man is as we have described him, 100% beautiful in mind, body and soul, fully equipped with intellectual faculties and the power of reason and self-control, he does not react to her in the way the nagging is designed to make him react. He's so perfect that he doesn't react. He does the most horrible thing to her. He comprehends her complaints. He understands that there's something wrong with her. (laughs) That she's upset about something. And so he manages to keep himself intact. Maybe he's superior in cunning as well as other things, because it might be that he even slightly, internally, in secret, agrees with her assessment. But that is a very disturbing thing, and in any case all deficiencies to such a man are only skin deep, and he never comes out to the skin. He lurks with his perfection deep within his being. And she cannot comprehend now two things. Why she has started to correct this perfect being. Why she is disappointed in this perfect being. And why this terrible change of mood in her, this determination to perfect him, has got hold of her. She cannot understand. And let's go back to the root of it. We remember in the Genesis story, It was Eve that started the trouble. God, the almighty, omnipotent, infinite intelligence, who in his providence sees all things before they happen. But as an early Christian father, Oregon said, although he sees all things that can happen, he does not determine which of those shall happen to any particular man. He just sees the results of all actions, like a good chess player, a pawn, the king for you might as well give up if you're playing black. So, he, at this very moment, this all-seeing God, looking down upon the situation, sees that Eve, a mere woman, that is to say, a non-intellective creature, with no initiative, and by inherent nature, willing to subject herself to a being of initiative and intellect, has mysteriously encountered within the Garden of Eden a being combining both those faculties to perfection, namely the serpent. You know by the shape of the serpent that it's got phallic initiative, and you know by its sinuous behaviour that it's highly subtle and devious in its intellectual formulation. And therefore you know But when these two encounter each other, this feminine creature willing to abase herself before a being of initiative and intelligence, shall, on encountering the serpent who has both, naturally listen to him. 
So she listens, and he points out it creates okay, this forbidden fruit. It looks nice. Looks as nice as one of those Californian peaches that they sell in America, having sprayed one side to look pink to represent the southern side of the fruit during lightning. And it also compares power and knowledge to make you exactly like God. Now, who would refuse such an offer? Answer, only a very, very sceptical person with a suspicious mind. Probably a future linear descendant of Gerhardt. <laughs> right. They wouldn't have called Gerhardt. They might catch Margarita, but not Gerhardt. Anyhow, Eve bit it. And immediately, she goes to Adam, because you know, the thing about women when they sin is this. They like companionship. They don't like sinning in isolation. You know, sitting in isolation is very boring. Everyone should have a companion in a sin. So she goes to this dopey Adam, lying around the place, obeying the command, and tells him what she's done and that she's not drop dead as prophesied by God. And he's so naive. He's called the dispensation for innocence when they're in the Garden of Eden. He's so naive, he thinks, well, she didn't drop dead, and God said she would. She eat of that fruit, of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you shall surely die. And she's not drop dead. Therefore, there's something fishy about this apple, or something apple-ish about this fish. So, he takes a bite, and suddenly, he feels horrible. He looks down, and he can see something he never saw before. <laughs> you know, it's possible to have one for years and not notice. It really is. I think I was about 29 when I found that I had. But I still not find out what it's for. It's a, it's a useful gadget at a picnic, but there's nowhere to go. And then he hides. You notice this essential quality about the guilty person. The guilty person hides. And God, who is omniscient, is always playing jokes. So he assumes a form, so that he's seen by Adam. He knows perfectly well in his omniscience that Adam is hiding. And he knows where. But does he let on that he knows where? No. He comes in the garden and calls out in a divine voice, Oh, Adam, where art thou? And Adam is hiding. And God is pretending he doesn't know that fact. And finally, Adam has to come out. Now, the reason he didn't know he had one was because before he bit of that tree fruit of knowledge of good and evil, his whole being was vibrant with celestial light. The light of his being shone through the gross matter of his body, and it was rather like looking at a thing when you overexpose it, other than a photographer's in the room. They know, do they not, that if you get a, a subject and you photograph it in a very, very intense light and overexpose it, well, if there's a photographer here, what happens? What happens to the image? Loses its edges. You can't find it. It's suffused with light. 
The light removes the images of too much of it. So imagine your condition in the Edenic state, because we're all there in Adam. Every one of us has a Logos Spiritus. There's inside Adam in Eden. Isn't that a nice thought? Every one of us, we are human souls, but every one of us is actually in the being of Adam at that time. So that when he disobeyed and chose to know, observe knowledge of good and evil, a duality, chose to know duality, the light of his unity went out. Now, perfect love casts out fear, fear is reason. And to will one thing only confers unity on the being. And when you have unity, you have a very peculiar thing, perfect magnetism and perfect light. You know, if you get an ordinary iron bar, which is not magnetic, and you put it on a little gadget and run a DC current through it, it becomes a magnet. Why? Because every little molecule in it is already a magnet. And they were lying higgledy-piggledy in all directions when it was apparently not magnetic, and all the different directions were self-contradictory and contradicted each other. But when you run that current through it, they're all forced into alignment. And when they all line up in the same way, in the same direction, unidirectional lying up turns them into a magnificent magnet. And at the same time, compares a peculiar magnetic light, which the mystics call a magnetic light, and some theosophists and others call the astral light, a primordial light that never was seen in the fallen time-matter world, but is nevertheless a real light. It is the equable light of the Tibetan Bardo Turdo. Think of that light, which is so intense in being, a light just like the light in one of those little flies. You know the fireflies? Now they shine by their own light. And the funny thing about that light, it is not a hot light. It's a cool light. And it greatly interests scientists, because if they could crack that particular puzzle, instead of having spotlights like this, which when they shine on you, heat you, you would have a light that would be pure light without heating you. It would be a super economic light. Now imagine that Adam, in that state, before the fall, was in a state where his whole being from its center was radiant with light, so that he could not see the gross body, which was the dust of the gown that God had used to form the basic weight, the inertia of the body, to keep it alive. That inertic time-matter body was shone through totally, so that Adam and Eve, before the fall, were walking about in that garden, just like celestial beings, shining from inside power and intelligence. Wasn't that nice? You're about to say something. It's a tendency in married men to listen to the wife. It's a genuine tendency. 
After all, he had asked for a helpmate, and God had given him one. So naturally he assumed that if she started helping, the kind of help he would get would be the kind he would like. But sometimes feminine help is not what a man likes. It just happens to be what is merely good for him. Which is intensely different. So there they are, these beautiful radiant pair, and this girl, never blame a woman for anything she does, because she has no intelligence, I'm talking about the feminine aspect of the human being, and no initiative. And she has a deep will to submit herself, because this is her essential nature. She wishes to submit to intelligent will. And it happens that the one she had was asleep, and there was another one there. It's a peculiar thing about women when they get married, if their husband proves deficient in any way, as soon as they find out, they automatically look for another one. Automatic, of course, means self-moving. So there they are, in this beautiful garden, and suddenly the light has gone out. And he's hiding with guilt. When the light went out, he suddenly saw his gross material body. And you know how a candle has a wick. And the lamp like that has a filament in it. Well, the phallic zone in the male is the wick of that man. And it's from that deep center, which the Japanese call hara, the power center, that this radiance flows. And the light has come out. And the confidence has departed, and despondency has descended, and the guilty member hangs down, dark, gross, and rather sorry for itself. Those of you who have seen a disappointed one of those know how sorry it can look. <laughs> so they're now apparently gross beings, riddled with guilt. And we, every one of us, are all inside that being, waiting to be bred, waiting to be let out. But it doesn't happen that we get let out in the garden, no, because the Absolute says, you shall surely die. And because Adam was a bit of a goof at the time, that is a Hebrew word, goof, meaning gross body, uh, he got himself thrown out. You cannot stay in the Garden of Eden if you judge good and evil. Because the word Eden means do not judge. It means non-judgment. Like paradise means beyond duality. If you see duality, if you make a judgment based on duality, you cannot stay in the Edenic paradisical state. It's quite impossible. Totally illogical. So they have to go out. But before they go out, what happens? Something terribly, characteristically human. God causes Adam to come out. What have you done? I have eaten the fruit. But, there's always a but. Remember that. Look for the but. The woman thou gavest me told me to eat it. What do you think about a bloke that hands the blame to the wife? 
I don't need to ask the ladies what they think about them. But what do the men think about themselves? If in fact, when cornered, when they made a supreme crashing error in something, they say, well, actually, the wife told me to do it. When boozing away in a Cheshire pub, you fellas together, alone, without women there, do you ever descend to that level? When you crash and you're now, what do they call it, uh, delimited, insolvent, bankrupt, you think, actually, it's a piece of advice the wife gave me. I'm now penniless, and she's run away with the baker. Do you feel okay if you say that? you feel proud? Or do you feel a bit guilty? Well, Adam, the first man, felt guilty. And we were in him at the time, and his guilt is in us today. One man falls, and we all fell with him at the same time. So God says to the woman, have you anything to say about him, my dear? Because you know when addressing women, you should always say, my dear. <laughs> in the double sense. Where the... <laughs> No need to go any further than that one. And she says, the serpent that thou puttest in the garden told me to do it. So over to you. So God doesn't waste time arguing with the serpent because he knows what serpents are like. He'll stop an endless debate like the one that would have been manifest if Christ had bothered to reply to Pilate to the question, what is truth? It would have been endless. So he doesn't waste time. He just says to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou shalt lose thy beautiful pair of legs. It was a biped at the time. And shalt crawl on my belly in dust. Which serpents, since then, have done. There are vestigial skeletal legs in the python that actually show once upon a time the python as represented in the Egyptian war paintings, ran about on two legs. Might even have been very big, like a dinosaur. But certainly at some time it had legs, and at some time it was demoted. And when it was demoted and went on its belly, it became a dweller in the earth, in holes, in caverns, in dark places. And its whole psyche became very, very much more darkly cunning and manipulative. So because you cannot stay in a garden of non-duality, in a garden of non-judgment, when you choose, and remember it is a matter of choice, when you choose to know good and evil, they have to meet. Now, in the same garden of this tree, some scholars say it is the same tree, but it is not the same tree. And yet, so-called intelligent scholars say, uh, we sincerely believe that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is actually the tree of life. But it doesn't say so in the Genesis story. But it refers to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life as two trees. And the tree of life is not dualistic at all. It sees everything and grows everything equally, like the sun shines equally on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So the life power, the mysterious fifth letter, the E in English, the He in the Hebrew, life itself, Lachaim, life itself, says, I will feed anybody, the rogue, 
the goody, the baddy, the stupid, the idiot, the genius. Why? Because, says life, I'm naturally a spiritual giver. I don't want to receive, I'm infinite. I just give. And you can do what you like with what I give. And once you go into the realm of judging dualities, you cannot have the essential unity represented by that tree of life. A unity that's not compounded as of atoms into a material body. A unity that is the unity of non-duality. It is prior to the division into the dual states. That unity is spiritual life itself. And so they go out to the garden, and immediately it says there, and they were set up at that eastern gate, a sword, flaming, turning this way and that, to keep out from the garden man, lest he crept back in and ate of the tree of life and lived forever. Why was that not allowed? Because if man chooses to know good and evil, and then is allowed to become immortal, he remains in a state of believing that good and evil are separable. He must remain in that state. Therefore, he has to die in order to rethink it. So that when God said, you shall surely die, he did not mean drop dead in the sense that Adam meant. He meant, you shall do what the word die means, and it means quite simply, be divided in your life. D-I-E, you say. You can do this kind of trick in any language if you want, but we'll stick to the English for the moment. If you want to be marked, or some other comical word you can be, they all mean the same thing. Division of the living self is the meaning of die. To die is to disintegrate. To die is to sever your thought from your feeling, your feeling from your will. So instead of being a holy trinity, you are three totally different functions at war with each other. That's all that God meant. If you choose to know good and evil, you will divide yourself. And that's elementary logic. If you say there is good and there is evil, you have divided in your consciousness the contents, and you have named a content good, a content bad, and you have done it, nobody else. I can see people here, some with red hair, some with black hair, some with no hair, some with curly hair, some with straight hair. If I were to take sides, I like rather fluffy hair, you know, more seductive. I don't like short, straight hair, partly to the face, it isn't fetching. Now, if I did that, I would be dividing my consciousness content. And if I did that, and gave it an effective charge, said this is worth more in terms of enjoyment than that is, I would have divided my life field. Life is energy. It isn't accidental that in English we have a vertical, which is I, and three bars to make a letter in. One is thought, one is feeling, one is will. 
the I expresses itself in a threefold way. When we allow this to sink inside of us, we are all, as Paul says, dead in our sins. Now the word sin means aim. Private aim and missing the non-private aim. To miss the mark. The mark is the absolute integrated total balance of the total possibilities of infinite being. That's us. Each one of us is an infinite being with infinite capacity for comprehending mysteries, infinite capacity for loving, infinite capacity for activating ourselves on the basis of our omniscience and our all-lovingness. We all have the power to do it. If we don't do it, it's because we, and no one else, has chosen. We have chosen to divide ourselves. We have separated our thoughts from our feeling, our feeling from our will. And we have become three enemies. Because then the thought spends its time defining this is good, this is bad, this is more bad than that, this is less good than that. And it spends all its time chopping things to pieces. Now, every time you cut a thing to pieces, you pluralize. Not only the forms that you have cut to pieces, you pluralize the affect, the emotional charges on those things. So to believe in a plurality of ideas, or of atoms, is to have emotive preferences for some over the others, because they are all slightly different in various ways. But if we have a different affect, a different emotional charge on an idea, then the next thing we have is a plurality of wills. Because each effectively charged idea will be shouting out, will me, will me, will me. And the will will scatter and wonder what to do of all these things being recommended. And when that happens, the being becomes totally disintegrated. The plurality of wills, the plurality of affective charges, the plurality of ideas will scatter through infinite space. And that is called losing one's soul. Now the soul, funnily enough, is eternal. So what does it mean to lose one's soul? The word lose and loose are the same word. When you integrate your soul, you gather it together and you make your thought and your feeling and your will into one compact trine, mutually supporting. But if you allow that some things are good and some bad, you divide yourself and you split your ideas into many and you spend your time thinking, sorting out, deciding what is good, what is bad, whether this is efficient and that less efficient for the fulfilling of this and that purpose until your mind becomes a hotbed of warring ideas. And then each one has its separate effective charge upon it, and each little effective charge screams out for the will to support it. When that happens, 
Instead of being integrated into one compact trine sphere of perfect function, you spread through infinity. You are loosed. You are lost in infinity. Now, how does it feel like if you see a compact soul held together by identification with its physical body only, and along comes a vehicle of some kind, hits it, and it is spread out. I think I mentioned to you before about the occasion when I saw a little boy, and this little boy ran straight in front of a steam-driven engine, and they couldn't stop those things because they were too weighty and the braking wasn't sufficient, and it just rolled him out flat on the road. And it was just near where I was standing, and it was opposite the butchers. And I looked at the flesh of this little boy, and the flesh was trembling. It was wondering where it was. The soul of that little boy at that moment had been spattered out. And everybody was horrified, standing there, they didn't know what to do with it. One cool mind was present, the butcher. He came out of the butcher's shop with a bucket of sawdust and tipped the sawdust like this over the trembling protoplasm of the little boy and then he suddenly shoveled it out and put it in the bucket and quickly took it away to avoid offending the sensitive observers. But what was the state of that little boy at that moment? Loosed. Yeah? For the time being. Maybe it would assemble at some remote point in time or space, but certainly at that moment it was not assembling. Now imagine a person who all his life has had a plurality of thoughts, a plurality of affective charges, a plurality of wills, and while he's in that state, only one thing holds him together, the inertia of his gross physical body. And at that moment he's tearing down the motorway in a fog at 80 miles an hour, pile up. And there's a head over there and an arm over there and a couple of legs up there and a stomach here. And the police come along and clean up. What is he like when his only reference has been broken in bits? He's loosed. He's a loosed soul. How does he feel? Answer. Not very happy. Why not? Because the word happy actually means to have one's power positive in a unific manner on one governing concept. That is the meaning of the word happy. It means put your hierarchical power positive on one and one only point, then you are happy. You are only happy when you are integrated and totally committed to what you are doing. That is the condition of happiness. So there we are. They do die. The ghost body did not drop dead when they chose to know good and evil. But their minds, their feelings, their wills split. 
an absolute logic, logologic. God is absolute logic as well as absolute power. As absolute power, he's called God the Father. As absolute logic, he's called God the Son. As absolute deed from his omnipotence, omniscience, he's called God the Holy Ghost. Not three gods. One God viewed in three ways by the intellect of man. A mislogological, omnipotent, omniscient, omniactive, says, you can't stay in here now. You have been illogical. But I can do you a favour. I'll push you out of the garden. You will have horrible experiences, the product of your own decisions of will. And when you've assimilated enough lessons, I will let you die, physically. I will release you from the body. And I will let you meditate for a time in another level of being beyond the growth and see if you can redesign yourself, rethink your position, called repent in the Bible, rehang yourself back on that primordial unity, that primordial echad, that wonderful hierarchical life field that has hidden within it mysteriously all the differences that could possibly exist, but also interwoven together, that they cannot be severed from each other and so fall into disintegration. There is the unity of man safeguarded by the fact of death. When man fell, he died, he disintegrated. And then this absolute intelligent power of God, in his mercy, said, I will now allow you to die grossly, physically. And the soul, in the moment before death, if the death is not violent, the soul gathers itself together. Now, people familiar with people dying in hospital, nurses and doctors, they often notice a tendency in those who are dying and know they are, to somehow gather themselves together before they die. There are very few that don't gather themselves together before they die. They think about their past and they try to integrate it, bring it into a oneness, and when they've got it sufficiently at one with itself, that's called atonement, at oneness, then they let go of the gross body and they pass into another level of being. A level of a light field without a ghost body, in which they are able to meditate upon the whole of their life for long enough to assimilate the message of their own errors. And then, when they've lived long enough in that level of being, to assimilate that lesson, and they have designed for themselves a new orientation towards life, then they come back again and they reincarnate in a protoplasm related most strongly to the kind of errors that they committed and have to correct. And remember what we said, every living being is like the tip, the growing tip of a twig on a tree, and every branch with many twigs is like a father or a mother, and all the branches come out of a trunk, which is the expression of the unity of life, 
and that derives from a primordial seed published by the infinite absolute. So that we, ourselves, reincarnate in the same protoplasmic line which we posited as parents long ago. We are all derived from this primordial human type, the Adamic type, and we were all hidden in his being a structured dynamic form called Logoi Spermaticoi and we have been derived from that primordial Adam through time and we were participators in his error in that garden so that when he died in due course and assimilated his lesson and that soul withdrew from that gross level of material existence and then came back again into it to complete his education he had bred Cain and Abel and Cain had murdered Abel and Eve had given birth to a new son in the place of murdered Abel, Seth and from these two had come lines of further development and the Cainish line had chosen knowledge and the line of Seth had chosen obedience to God and out of the one line we call it the sons of men and out of the other line we call it the sons of God which is a metaphor for saying this lot like empirical science and this lot like pure ontology divine metaphysics and then the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were comely to look upon and they entered into them and they conceived and they brought forth titans, Nephilim, giants, mighty men of old. And they bred continuously and fanned out and made the populations of the world. And we are the living now here representatives. We have still inside us these same two impulses, the Cain impulse, the Abel impulse and we ourselves as individuals can choose and if we choose for the one or the other we get the fruits and if we oscillate and won't choose we get spewed out of the mouth and non-chooser is not dynamized by the absolute because the absolute polarizes in this way to bring the poles together again because polarization, splitting of the unity into two and then looking at the two simultaneously allows choice. Without that primary polarization you could not choose. So the birth from Cain the murderer and the birth from Seth who is God's representative after the murder of Abel they're in us now. And we can choose whether we will believe in empirical materialistic science and whether we will think that psychology is mechanistic behaviorism or a teleological evolutionary spiritual device for the perfecting of divine human beings for the future. It is a choice that we can make. And if we choose the one, we get a certain fruit. If we choose the other, another fruit. 
one of the fruits, the empirical, materialistic, the dedication to separativity, atomism, the worship of granularity, the diabolical Ahriman, the Persian mythology, that one leads to disintegration of our soul because it scatters us. If you don't believe it, look at the pluralization of sciences. A few hundred years ago, it was possible for a well-educated young man to know all about science. The young buck of the Renaissance knew all about current science. Why? Because there was very little of it. Anybody can know all about nearly nothing. It doesn't take much. But what has happened since, through that research of that cage, empirical, materialistic, atomistic science, the sciences, have they become simpler or more complex? Don't we have now sciences so diverse, so specialised, that one brilliant genius, Nobel Prize winner in one department, knows nothing whatever about another work of another brilliant genius, specialised in his department. So in fact, Every person who specializes in that isolating way is killing himself because he's making himself into a mechanism of the form to which he has dedicated himself. And the law is you go under the law governing the object to which you identify. So if a man believes in a plurality of sciences He's always aware that there are some sciences he has not studied, areas of ignorance for him. So he must necessarily, in the effective level of his being feeling efficient, and in his volitional level, he must be willing to get to know more about it, so that when he goes to an international conference in Tokyo or Oslo, and it's allowed five minutes to put forward his thesis, because they've got 2,000 other brilliant specialists there. He should be able to converse with them a little. So he should know a little bit of their vocabulary. So if you get a convention in which all the topmost thinkers go, and some are philosophers, and some are scientists, and some are psychologists, and some are psychiatrists, and some are physiotherapists, and some are given up and are now drunkards. But they must all have a vocabulary of interchange. Otherwise, they cannot keep their self-image. So how do they feel internally? Do they feel any different from the little boy under the steamroller? No. They don't. As a matter of fact, if you go to such a convention and you see them, you see they form little pockets like this of specialists. And if we do a little bit of whatever it is, red biddy or something, you walk about among them and listen here and listen there, you find that this group is insulting the leader of that group. And that group is insulting the leader of that group. And they're all saying rude things about the other specialists who don't know about my own speciality. Why? Because they feel deficient. They feel deprived. Because they are. It's as simple as that. Why is that? Because the ultimate goal of science is the solution of the problem 
of total reality. But the word total means dead. Total means God is dead. And he's not going to move. He's going to stay there waiting to be examined. But he's not. Because God is spirit. God is dynamism. God is evolutionary intention. And at the very moment when science thinks that it has got something to take, there is a process going on underneath. So that when he comes to examine the spectrum, it isn't what he was yesterday. I saw a woman interviewed an American about the Iranian thing, her solution to the problem, how to get out of the hostages. She said, nuke the Iranians. Nuke them. That meant nuclear bomb them. I think it was a new word they introduced. Nuke them. She thought somehow they could drop a, uh, a nuclear bomb on take Iran, which wouldn't hit the American embassy. She wasn't very knowledgeable. Now, people can say things like that. But are people thinking like that? Because they are disintegrated. They haven't got the Renaissance Bucks belief that they know everything because they know they don't. But they have a wonderful tendency to vote for somebody they've never met in their lives before who has made an election speech written by somebody else and doesn't know what it is that he's just said anyway and couldn't care less as long as he gets your votes. So that the gross material facts of the pursuit of separated individualistic powers is totally uncomprehended by 95% of people. Now, if we want to avoid losing our souls, we've only one remedy, and that is to stop pluralizing our purposes. We must have only one purpose. Now let's see, back to our original problem. It was Eve that caused Adam to eat the fruit. Or was it the fact that Adam was stupid, naive, or kindly innocent? In any case, he was irresponsible. And because woman caused the initial fall, then universal logic says she's got to put it right. Now you know by the law of the continuity of protoplasm we are all growing tips of protoplasm of the primordial human protoplasm that is mythologically referred to as the Adamic state of being. A woman caused the fall. So there is in woman a very, very, very deep guilt she brought man down. And whether she admits it or not superficially, she knows it. So now she flies into the opposite error. She will pick him up. She will give him back his perfection, which she deprived him of. Is it good logic? My God, no. Adam could have said, no, my dear, we were forbidden. Don't let's hide, let's apologize. Well, Adam had the choice of taking the apple. Yeah, of course he did. Mm. It was wrong for him to pass the buck. It was wrong for her to pass the buck. Mm. When they got thrown out, it was she who deprived house, home, cooker, fridge, 
car and guilt is the psychological expression for a sense of deprivation resulting from one's own action. That's all that guilt means. It means that the will, the guilt, the G-U-I-L means will. That the will is aware that it has crucified itself. So she driven by this guilt that she calls his failure, now becomes guilty in the exactly opposite direction. She's not going to wait for God to enlighten Adam. She is going to put it right with herself, with Adam, with Snake, and with God. She knows nothing whatever about divine grace. She was willful in the first place, she's willful in the second she will now reform this manifestly fallen degenerate piece of Adamic tissue. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> I see you had experience. Well, you see, what woman has to learn, a terrible lesson. It is God who can reform man, not woman. The best she could do in her position, especially if she's married, and hopefully if she isn't married, the only way to get married is to look at you as you might, is to realise that she's not in her hands to reform that man. Because God is a very, very clever fellow. You see, what God does is this. He creates, using his own power, his own intelligence, because there isn't anything else. And he wills to make creatures in order to express to himself as in a mirror his own content. And logically he is required to will for himself an incarnate representative of himself fully developed as a divine being on earth. And this is man perfected, the divine human. So every time there is an error what does God do? Say, you shouldn't have done that? Turn his back on us? No, he doesn't do that. No, funny. Funny, very interesting. I wonder what would happen if he went to the end and he lets man go to the end of his error. And he capitalizes on it. And by so doing, he introduces man, falling man, sinning man, missing the mark man. He introduces him to millions of errors that he never even thought of. And that's why it says in the Lord's Prayer, which is a prayer said to God, O oh, lead us not into temptation. Do you say that to the devil or to God? In the Lord's Prayer it is said to God, lead us not into temptation. We're smart enough already. Errors we know about enough. And the pains already we know about enough. And God says, I can think of errors implicit logically in the ones you've already committed which you have not yet examined thoroughly. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. What I am going to do is set up funny little signposts like this. And you can look at it and you can say, is that a funny stiff hand? Or is it pointing? And if so, is it pointing this way or this way? Because when you point like that, you know, you should always have your thumb up. 
Look at that. I had an old friend. He was 87 when he dropped dead drunk. I mean, he was dead drunk and he dropped dead. He was a very nice old man. His name was Harry. He was called in the village, a T-shaped village like this old Harry. And he was very funny because he had, or claimed to have when work was mentioned, rheumatism in the fingers. And he used to come along and say, would you like to go out looking for rabbits and mushrooms this morning? And I'd go with him and the other boys. And Sally'd say, there's a rabbit over there. And you see, I knew he meant look along this line. But beginners looked along that line. And they couldn't see any rabbit. And extending this art, I used to point people and say, why did you go that way? And let them choose. Now, this is exactly what God does to us. He shows us sins we never thought of. But not ones that were not implicit in the ones we have thought of. We think of the ones we like. And he points out the logically connected ones. Some like to pray in Rouge et Noir. So they go to a gaming hell. They like the red and the black. And then they think, why not red and black underwear on the sexy? That could be interesting. Been that. And that's a logical extension of a sin, isn't it? I know a man that can't kiss his wife unless she's got black underwear on. <laughs> and you know, sometimes she lies. He comes in rather hot, worried, needing solace. And he comes in and asks for a kiss and says, have you got your black red on? And she hasn't, you know. She's got nothing on. But it's midsummer. And she says, yes. And then he relaxes. And this is a sin with implications. <laughs> and she's more economic. Why should she get hot if she can manage to soothe him without? <laughs> you know, God being Jewish. You know, God is a Jewish God. Do you know the original God of God is a Jewish God? I mean, even his name is Yiddish. He's very economic. And because he breathes his spirit into man, man is also economic. But the male side of the human race is very dopey and slow in its economic, while the feeling life of the woman is immediate in its economic assessment. And therefore, the female is able to make brilliant immediate assessments. Now, because she's so smart naturally, God, who capitalizes on errors, had to slow her down with something. And this something is the key to the whole problem with which she started. Yiddish boys call it being on the hook. When a girl falls in love for the first time, she has an infinite yearning like Cleopatra, immortal longing. And then she gets into a sexual relation, even as far as a kiss on the fingertips. Her chemistry begins to change immediately. 
Now the peculiar thing about these sexual hormones that begin to synthesize on receiving the first kiss in spring is this. They are able to switch off all intelligence that might defend itself in individual egotistic survival modes. Sexual hormones switch off the reasoning man and switch off that wonderful feeling assessment power of the woman. So the woman is forced to converge on the man who has triggered her into that harmonic reactive state. And the man likewise is forced to converge on the woman who triggered him into that hormonal reactive state. Now, otherwise, the immediacy with which woman apprehends the situation would make her actually all-powerful in the time-matter world. She's so cunning, so innately, brilliantly, deviously cunning, that if she had not got a break on her, she would be able to manipulate mere men with perfect efficiency. And if she did that, she would be lost. Because she would become the supreme Mahama. She would become the great, visible, time-matter goddess. So death even does her a favor. Because you will observe that whenever a woman has great power and becomes a great matriarch, perhaps covering several generations, it is only death that releases her from her grip on the lives of those people over whom she has gained sway. It seems that we are in rather a difficult position. We are hermaphroditic, that is, we have a body, we have feelings, we have intellection, and we have initiative. And we are led by the time impulse to evolve. And in that, we have mentation. Our middle finger, if you remember, symbolizes mentation. Pure logic on your index finger, mentational, serial thinking on your middle finger. We make this funny animal, and it walks along mentationally, carrying its body, its feelings, its intellect, and its will with it. But mentation is serial. It thinks one thing after another. And one thing after another, no matter how many data you collect, can never add up to the original pre-analytic non-duality represented by the Edenic state. So that no amount of mentational serial thinking continued ever so long throughout time. If we made time endless, no amount of mentational serialized ideation could arrive logically at that pre-analytic non-duality of pure spirit in its Edenic state. But we have been trained over thousands and thousands of years to think mentationally. Now if we don't learn to stop serial mentational thinking and replace it by something totally different, we can never attain what we're looking for. 
Now all the great religions of the world concur exactly in this same statement. Whether you're talking about European Christian mystics, whether you're talking about the Middle Eastern Arabian religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or Hinduism, or China or Japan, any of those religions say the same thing. The pursuit of a state of awareness not dependent on serial mentation. In Europe, the mystics say it is the pursuit of nothingness. An identification with nothing. In Buddhism, it is the pursuit of sunya, the void. Pure voidity. It means non-seriality. It doesn't mean there's nothing there. It means there is everything there simultaneously. But not serially. You comprehend totally. There are people in this room. You all know you're in this room. You don't need to count each other, do you? You feel your presence, don't you? And each one of you sitting there feels the presence of all the others. Uh, therefore, your feeling awareness of each other is intermeshing. That's the Japanese jidimuge, the absolute interpenetration of all beings at that feeling level. And that's your intellective level, you know, it is true. If we are all here at once, we don't need to count. There's a lot of us here. And we are all aware of it. That is non-serial awareness. So it is not something strange to us. We're quite familiar with it. We tend to ignore it. And when we do ignore it, we're in trouble. The thing that makes us ignore it is egotistic, private, separative purpose. Which considers that the purpose of this woman and that woman and that woman are different. Now think about it as organisms sitting on chairs and all the organisms have been involved intentionally by a non-dual absolute intelligent power to make for itself many, many vehicles of expression for intercommunication. So that you are all children of the one God. Think about that. Every one of you is a son of God. You call the son of God as to your initiative intelligence and a daughter as to your feeling and physical orientation. You put a question to me now and you have talked as if what you have said 
is significant to somebody other than a self-centered egotist. Now I'm going to throw it open to the rest of you. In all the contradictions that were apparently there, is there any absolute logical necessity that they should be considered to be mutually exclusive? No, somebody disagrees with you. Now you actually came in and sat on the front row in Gerhardt Place. Do you know it's a hot seat? <laughs> no, Gerhardt has been calming down. You see, and you moved into his seat. And you have, by your own definition, described exactly what I'm talking about. That a person with an egotistic, private, glandular, atomistic purpose a private intent cannot get back to that premeditational Edenic state of non-duality. You've described it perfectly. One? Which one? Oh, you, oh you, well, you're supposed to make your own mind up. And God will capitalize on you. You make your own mind up. One, do you know that God is one? you know that God is said to be one in all major religions? Right? Is there a Jewish person in the house that knows how to say God is one? You're not Jewish, you. Let me see this echad. What does he mean? One? Only God can be one. You can't be one. You haven't got the power. You haven't got the knowledge. You're in bits because you're a linear descendant of Adam. You're already a disintegrated soul as evidenced by the form of your question. So the only thing you can do is stop mentational thinking and allow yourself to be healed by the only Achad, by God. And so the intelligent absolute power of infinity is the only healer. You have to stop your private mentation like you're striving and really believe that there is an intelligent power that knows you exist. Do you believe it? Are you telling the truth? Do you believe that God knows you exist? can tell the truth. I know it means she knows it because you know that the nose is the palace representative on the face. And every time you insult him, he knows it. Just, he knows. <laughs> Come on, do you think that God knows you exist? No. No, you see? Now, how many people here think that God doesn't know they exist? Show hands. Tell the truth. You've got them off. It is not possible for a mentational mind to know that God exists. It is not possible for that mentational process to comprehend the infinite. Is it? How can a mentational process based on reality comprehend the infinity, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence is a reality? Is it possible at mentational level? No. 
No, no, dear, you don't. That's what you want to do. That's egotism driving you. And God letting it drive you to teach you a lesson and anybody else who's watching you. Because we can all learn from each other's errors. You know, they made Socrates drink hemlock for doing that on nice boys, aren't you? You know that. I didn't tell you up, you did. You were driven by the desire to know that the empirical ego was on the bandwagon. It wanted to know for its purposes. Of course. You had no idea of omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, in which it was living and moving and having its being. You had no idea that that omniscience was pushing it about and making it evolve so that it could possibly make the only thing that actually confers upon you that which you're looking for. And that thing is that weird, wonderful, Kierkegaardian thing a leap of faith. It is impossible for serial mentation to comprehend the meaning of omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. It's illogical to expect that mechanism of serial thinking to do it. Because you can choose to like it or dislike it. And that will give you an orientation. Of course you're not, because everything is educational. You want to... I know it's still itchy. You want to equate pleasurable with right and painful with wrong, which isn't. You can learn as much from either. And the thing is to get you back to the point where you recognise that there is an unbridgeable gap which logic cannot bridge between serial mentation and the simultaneity of absolute spiritual consciousness. You can't have a line of temporal thought processes adding up to a non-temporal conclusion. And therefore, at a certain point, you have to gather yourself together and make that mysterious thing, the leap of faith. You have to believe in this thing I know you can't do it at the moment unless God interferes with you between now and when I finish my sentence, which he might, by grace. You cannot believe that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent intelligence, power, which is God, has posited you there and the rest of us, knows you are there better than you do, and knows exactly which course of treatment of errors you need to bring you to the leap of faith. But you can't believe it. 
and takes it out of your hands until you are ready enough, ripe enough to make the leap. But to do that you have to be empirically egoically dead. The empirical ego must die based on temporal material experience. Your egoic self, the one you ordinarily refer to, must die. And said the seed die and fall to the ground, it divides alone. You cannot return to the absolute consciousness which is the spirit of God put into man until you give up relying on your materialistic, temporalistic, egotistic, atomistic analysis of the world. Now, can you do it now? I don't even know how to do it. Well, you don't know how to do it. How is stop, private, serial, purposing? That's the how. Can you do it? Give up all purposes now of any kind, whatever, of time, matter, serial nature, of success, temporal and material. Give them all. You've got a business, haven't you? Give up. Absolutely. The concept. Don't give the business up. Give up the concept that you own it. Give up the concept that it's there for your benefit. And reverse it. It's there for divine service. Can you do that one? Everything you earn is his. Every penny you earn from you and your workers belongs to God and is to be deployed for divine purposes, not private egotistical purposes. Lay yourself at the service of God. You do. Can you do it? Anybody seen any dabs floating there? <laughs> Maybe. I have, a, I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had an idea of it. I think we'll let you have a little breather, all right? for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.